All right, you guys. Remember I said we're in Acts chapter 15 today, and I said that the first half of Acts is reaching out to the Jewish believers and the people that were previously Jewish that had come to follow Christ. And the second half is going to be the church among the Gentiles and going out to the Gentiles and not the Jewish converts. Well, if you looked ahead or you checked your table of contents, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And last week we finished Acts 14. And so now we have had our halftime show with Christmas. And now this Acts 15, um, it, it is universally accepted that this is the most important chapter in the whole book of Acts. Everybody says that. I think everybody says that because they think they should. And they think that that's right. And everybody just agrees that it is. We could argue whether it is or not because I'm, I think there's a lot more important <laughs> chapters in here. But... Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas have gone on their first missionary journey. You can check out the map. And they've come back. They came back to Antioch. And the Antioch people may or may not have heard what went on while they were gone. So they may have gotten some words back. They may have gotten some visitors and some travel. But it's not likely that they heard a lot. And this probably took months and months and months. And they, they're traveling. Uh, they went to Cyprus. They went all around on Cyprus. So that was risky. The passage from the coast, the Mediterranean coast, you know, that's now Israel and West Bank and all that, to Cyprus. That would have been dangerous. What, if they didn't know, you know, kind of like they didn't know, no news is good news kind of thing. They went through all kinds of treacherous stuff on the island of Cyprus. They went through treacherous stuff into what is today Turkey and all the way across. They were almost home and then they turned around and they went back the way they came through all those places. They haven't heard any of that. They come back to Antioch where the Holy Spirit commissioned them and sent them out with fasting and prayer and we assume that there's all kinds of celebration and a big party and they encourage them. It says they encourage them about all the work that happened among the Gentiles. Acts 15.1 But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas come back. They talk about all these Gentiles that got saved, all this stuff, how great it is. But in the meantime, these guys came from Jerusalem and they said... Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He died on the cross for our sins. But you can only be a Christian if you're circumcised. And to us nowadays, we read that and it's kind of left field. Like, what in the world? What does this have to do with anything? Okay, so in their day, 
um, well, now too. The, the key foundational base thing of being Jewish was for a little boy to be circumcised. And if he was circumcised, then he was Jewish. And he would grow up and he might be a bacon eater and he might be an idol worshiper. But oh, by golly, he's circumcised. So we still hold out hope for him. Does this sound familiar? This is, we use the same thing today with baptism. You know, oh, he might be a real rebel rouser and he might be a terrible person, but when he was a week old, we baptized him and so we can hold out hope for him. It was the baseline thing of conversion among the Jews that if they were circumcised, they were in the people of God and everything else rested on that. And so some places these guys are called Judaizers which I don't know if that's exactly the best word. But these were just really, really, uh, some, play, some people might call them conservative because they're trying to keep to the original ways. Basically, these guys are influenced by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, remember, the Pharisees believed that if we could get everybody in Israel to obey the whole law for one day, then the next day, The Messiah would return and all the kingdom of heaven would happen and all perfection, sin would be gone. And so we just have to obey those laws. So then you get the message of Jesus dying for their sins, rising from the dead, their sin not counting against you anymore. But they are so stuck in this way of we have to obey the laws that even people that believe in Jesus also believe in following the laws. Does that make sense? Because it's just hard to teach old dog new tricks. It's hard to get people out of their culture of what they've believed. And so these people come and they say, yes, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And so to follow him, you have to become Jewish. And the baseline thing for being Jewish is being circumcised. So therefore... If you aren't circumcised, you're not Jewish, and you can't follow a Jewish Messiah, and Jesus didn't die for you, and so you have to be circumcised to be saved. Paul and Barnabas have been among the Gentiles. They have preached Jesus to the Gentiles. They have watched the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles and watch them prophesy, prophesy, watch them speak in tongues, watch them work miracles. And so they know from their own sight, and we'll see that they know from quoting Isaiah and quoting Amos and quoting other prophets and even going back as far as Moses, going back as far as Abraham, that it's not based on whether you're Jewish or not. You don't have to be Jewish to be saved. So they argue. And then they say, okay, we need to take this to Big Brother. We need to take this to the boss. We need to go to Jerusalem and have this settled. And so these people, the people that came from Judea that are in Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas and a couple other people, they all pitch in a whole bunch of money. The whole church in Antioch pitches in money. And they send them all, you guys go to Jerusalem, and figure out what the apostles say. 
get the real word from Jerusalem. And I think it's so funny that on their way to Jerusalem, what do Paul and Barnabas do? They go right into all the Gentile territory and preach the gospel some more. Like, if they believed that you had to be circumcised to be saved, they wouldn't have done the very next thing they do in verse 3. They go through Phoenicia, which is full of uncircumcised Gentiles. They go through Samaria, which, right, everybody in Jerusalem hates Samaritans and can't believe that any of them would be saved. And they detail all the conversion of the Gentiles, which brings joy to all the brothers. There are believers in Phoenicia and in Samaria that are probably not circumcised. Okay? (laughs) So they come to Jerusalem, verse 4. They're welcomed by the church, the apostles, the elders. They all declare to God what God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. And they said, it's necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. So these people are in Jerusalem. They weren't just in Antioch. They were in Jerusalem. And they are part of the Pharisees. They were taught as Pharisees. But they've come to follow Jesus. Nicodemus could be in this group. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was there helping bury Jesus. Um, it's highly likely that he was in this group of people. People like that. They, they were rigorous for following the law of Moses and were now enjoying the grace of God through Jesus Christ. The apostles and the elders gathered together and they consider this matter. They have much debate. So they're all discussing it. The apostles, the, um, remember when they got the seven Gentile guys or the seven Greek guys, and Stephen was one of them. They get those folks together. All the people who haven't dispersed, or maybe people that came back, and they have this meeting, this council, and they have a debate. Peter stands up among them. Now remember, Peter went to the home of Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit said to him, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And that was all about Gentiles. Peter himself was there watching Italians become Christians. The followers of Jesus. They weren't called Christians yet, right? Peter stands up. He says, brothers, you know in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bears witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. Some of them might have even been there giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Remember when the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his whole family, that was like Pentecost for non-Jewish people. Because it was just like Pentecost, and they were prophesying, and they were speaking in tongues, and the Holy Spirit was upon all of them. So Peter says... Now, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Think about that. Peter was raised Jewish. He was was trying very hard his whole life to be a good Jewish kid. And he says to all of them, why are you trying to make them do something that we can't even do? 
Why are you trying to make Gentiles follow a law that we Jews can't even follow ourselves? <gasps> How dare you say we can't follow it, right? You see a bunch of Pharisees in there? They're like, I've followed the law since the very first day. I've fasted twice a week. I've never eaten a gnat. Whatever. We believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We will be saved just like they will. It's all about Jesus. Peter himself says that. Okay, so this is pretty awesome. I'm going to assume we don't know the end of the story. We don't know anything about the future, right? So just think about Peter. Peter has had this change in the book of Acts from um, being denying Jesus to being restored as a leader in the church, to being the guy that stood up and spoke on Pentecost, to being thrown in jail, to being rescued out of jail. He was not going to eat any unclean thing, but he was the first guy to go preach to the Gentiles and watch them get saved. And now he is saying, we should not require anyone to follow the law of Moses It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew. Everybody is saved through Jesus. All the assembly falls silent. Because, whoa. I mean, the Pharisees are elbowing each other and they're like, Peter. Peter just switched over, you know. Peter says circumcision isn't important. We don't have to follow the law. That's a big deal. Peter is like the man, right? And if he is agreeing with Paul and Barnabas, this might be real. Maybe we should listen to him. Then they listen to Barnabas and Paul. And Barnabas and Paul, I love this. They don't give a whole bunch of evidence from the Old Testament about why circumcision shouldn't count. They don't give you a bunch of theological logic and reason and philosophy. They relate what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. You remember the guy that was born blind? And he got Jesus healed him of his blindness. And the Pharisees said, is this man the Messiah or not? And the guy said, you got to decide that for yourself. All I know is, I was blind and now I see. And the inferred thing that he says is you guys taught me that the only person that could heal a man born blind is the Messiah. And I was born blind, and now I can see. So follow your own... Argue with these eyeballs, right? Paul and Barnabas, they're like, look, y'all, listen to what happened in Pisidian Antioch. And you can just hear the Pharisees being like, Pisidian Antioch, are you kidding me? Those people, they think Zeus and uh, Hermes like turn people into trees and they have priests of Zeus there. Those people believed? Yes. Let me tell you about Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus, the governor of Cyprus? That dude's got a witch in his court that names himself the son of salvation. And he's a Jewish false prophet and a magician. He believes? And Paul and Barnabas would be like, let me tell you about old Bar Jesus and what I did to him. Right? He's telling the story and they're all like, so James gets up. 
James, you guys, this is the brother of Jesus. He did not believe while Jesus was alive. In 1 Corinthians, there's this one obscure verse that says that Jesus, after he rose from the dead, appeared to James all by himself. We don't get any more details of that story. James became the ruler, the the elder of the Jerusalem church, not the elder of the whole church. Pretty interesting. But he was the elder of the Jerusalem church. They all respected him. He's probably the guy that wrote the book of James. He stands up. He says, okay, everybody listen to me. Simeon or Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them a people for his own name. And with this, all the prophets agree. Like it says in the book of Amos, all of a sudden James busts out the prophet Amos. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind will seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So here's James suddenly taking the side of Paul and Barnabas, taking the side of Peter, quoting Amos, which those Pharisees would have just loved that, right? So he's, he's speaking their language. The other wild thing is guess who else quoted the prophet Amos? Stephen, when he was about to be killed. So you've got this influence of Stephen, the Greek, influencing James, the head of the Jerusalem church. Okay, one more totally crazy thing. When James quotes Amos, in the original writing of this, in the language of this, he quotes the Greek version of the prophet Amos. So you've got Amos and he's a prophet and he writes and he, he, you know, we have the Hebrew scroll of the prophet Amos. And then as the Judaism spreads all over the, the, the Greek world, there are more and more Greek speaking people that want to become Jewish. So they translate the Hebrew old, we call it the old Testament into Greek And that's the Septuagint. The Septuagint is now the Greek Old Testament translation of the Hebrew. Does that make sense? And so every once in a while in the New Testament, someone will quote an Old Testament prophet. And it's really crazy when the commentators and theologians dig into it. And they find that they're not quoting some of them. It goes both ways. It happens different times in different ways. But in this case, James is quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so as he does that and he quotes this, all, who's, who's going to hear that the most native are the Greek speaking Christians. Maybe Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, but more likely the Gentile Christians. And so this is just such a, such a dramatic play of, I'm going to try to speak your language. I'm going to try to reach out to you. 
I am going to try to talk the way you talk. I'm going to, uh, when we were doing our missionary training, there was some, some bits of it where uh, this one guy, he had this whole philosophy of games. And if you can go into a culture and play the games the culture plays, then the culture will accept you that much more. So Cindy and I, we dig up all this stuff and we're like, backgammon. Backgammon is a game they play. We went to Barnes & Noble. We got the how to play backgammon gift box. And we tried to learn how. You guys, two years in Central Asia, I never played backgammon with anybody. We saw it getting played one time. We just, there were other games they played. They played video games, right? James, right here, is trying to reach the culture. And he is trying to reach across and he's trying to bring unity in all of this. But he's also saying, this is rebuilding the tent of David. Calling Gentiles. All the Gentiles who are called by my name are coming. So James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. Okay, so James has these four little rules here, though. For from ancient generations, Moses... Oh, we won't talk about that yet. Okay, so he gives them these four rules. What's crazy is those four rules show up when Noah gets off the ark. These are four rules before the Ten Commandments, before Abraham, before Isaac. I mean, way before any of that stuff. Noah. We're going back to Noah here. Don't eat blood that's in the animals. There's a, there's a little verse where God says the blood, the life is in the blood, so don't eat the blood. Okay? Um, abstain from sexual immorality. Don't mess up what, what marriage makes holy and pure, right? Don't, don't, uh, don't pollute that. Don't eat what's been strangled or polluted by idols. So basically, don't give credit to any created thing for the food that you eat. Don't sacrifice it to idols. And one way that they would kill animals, there were, there were, um, there were tribes and groups of people that they valued eating meat while the blood was in it. We can't really fathom this because we've been so uh, influenced by Judeo-Christian culture that we, we just can't go there. Um, it's just a normal part of our butchering that we let all the blood out, right? That's because of this, this is so, Christian culture is so deep to us. But there are cultures that would strangle the animal so that it wouldn't be cut, so the animal dies in this terrible way, and then they would eat it like that, cut it up and eat it with all the blood in it. Um, yeah. I should really not talk anymore about that, should I? <laughs> so look, people, we're not going to make them obey the law of Moses. We're not going to make him get circumcised, but there are these things that God told Noah to prevent the destruction of the world that go back, that apply to all nations, Gentiles, Jews, Greeks, Scythians, slaves, barbarians, free, everybody. Don't do that, but otherwise you don't have a law on you. You got no law. Then he says this weird verse, verse 21. 
From ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him. There's Jews everywhere. The law of Moses has gone out all over the place. He's read every Sabbath. Some people think this means we don't have to tell people the law because the the law is getting preached all over the place. They'll become Jewish. They'll figure out how to follow the law. Problem is that doesn't really fit with the rest of Scripture. (laughs) Another way to look at this as God's been reaching out with the law for centuries. God's been reaching out for the, with the law for 4,000 years. Now he is reaching out with his son. Now he is reaching out by the power of the Holy Spirit, the message of Jesus Christ. The law isn't going to save anybody. Nobody's going to get saved by the law. So they agree on that. They all agree with James. They write up a letter. Look at how good they delegate this. Like this is, they're, they're trying to keep the controversy low. They write up this whole letter and they send back uh, Paul and Barnabas. They send a couple guys from Jerusalem to be with them. So if Paul and Barnabas came back all by themselves to Antioch and they said, oh yeah, Peter said nobody has to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the Mosaic law. Do you think all the people that think you should follow the Mosaic law are going to believe those guys? They're not, right? They're going to be like, well, he's just saying that. So they send back some guys from Jerusalem. So they send this letter. And the letter to the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. (gasps) So... Again, one of the best Bible studies is just think through what would that have been like to be real. You're sitting in church. You got the people who caused this whole brouhaha that said you got to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. They're sitting there. Paul and Barnabas come back from Jerusalem with this letter and these other guys. And they read the letter that says, we didn't send these guys to confuse you. We didn't send these guys at all. They just got unvalidated right there. Wow. Pretty bold. We gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord. We as a church have agreed to this. The Jerusalem church has agreed. The elders have agreed. We're sending men to you and... Beloved Barnabas and Paul, we acknowledge, we esteem Barnabas and Paul... Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. We've sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of their mouths. It is good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood, what's been strangled, and sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. Whoa. The law of Moses has just been undone. Uh, It was undone by Jesus. But how do you live that out? Paul and Barnabas go out and preach it. Peter, James, and the church of Jerusalem affirm it. We are not living by the law of Moses anymore. 
So they were sent off. They went down to Antioch. They gathered the whole congregation together. They delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, the big heavy hitters that they sent down from Jerusalem, they themselves were prophets and they encouraged and strengthened the brothers in Antioch. After they spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers that sent them. And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, preaching and teaching the word of the Lord with many others. This is the first church conflict ever, right? Big enough that they have to have a big old meeting in Jerusalem. If you read through this this week, look at how much encouragement happens. How much they aren't just arguing to win an argument. But they are pleading with each other to agree with one another to follow Jesus. And Jesus becomes the main thing. What do we have to do to be saved? Do we have to get circumcised? Do we have to quit eating bacon? Continue to grow in the Lord Jesus. And then look at how many times prophets come up. Words from the Lord to encourage people in their faith in Jesus. There is so much... There's so much dialogue. There's so much reaching across. When James quotes the Greek Old Testament, he, that was probably not his native thing. If he grew up in Galilee, uh, along with Jesus, if he grew up in Jerusalem, where he's the head of the church, all those places, the Greek Old Testament was probably not his main thing. It's like if I, if I went to some church that was King James only, and I just preached from the King James... I am so not used to the King James, but I would be doing that to reach out to the people that speak that language, right? They probably don't speak King James either, but just saying. Paul and Barnabas stay there, continuing to encourage. So whenever you read the Bible, you want to interpret it with itself, because the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. All of the stuff that has just happened in Acts 15 is going to lay, lay the groundwork and lay the plan for all the rest of the book of Acts and all of the rest of the New Testament. All of the stuff that just happened in Acts 15 isn't described in Acts 15 though. Some of it is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 1. When God is saying, I am stuffed with your burnt sacrifices. I am done with your rams and the fat from your steers. When you're in my presence, do you think I want all of this? And God is saying, I don't want all this outward activity. For the Jewish world, it was primarily teaching outward activity, hoping that if you did enough outward stuff, it would eventually get down into your heart and soul and you would have faith in God. But until you have faith in God, by golly, don't you eat any bacon. And don't take more than 3,000 steps on the Sabbath. And 613 laws, plus another 10 or 20,000 added after the Babylonian captivity. Yes, for real. There were uh, over 1,000 laws just about the Sabbath added after the Babylonian captivity. And the whole idea was, if we can get you to do so much right stuff on the outside, we will work that down into the inside and make you act right, and you'll follow Jesus. Or you'll, you'll follow Yahweh. 
All of this is a huge caution for us. What makes a person a Christian, right? Is it that I don't have tattoos across my neck? Because what Christian would have tattoos across their neck? A lot of them. Is it that I go to church on Sunday? Well, there's a lot of Christians that go, don't go to church on Sunday. Is it that I carry a bigger Bible than anybody else? Which I do. No. It's Jesus. It all has to rest on Jesus. This has actually been a struggle for the church since this time. And it's still going on right now. Right? It's happening in... I mean... The number one reason why we have new churches getting planted is because somebody got mad at their old church and went and started their old church, started a new one. So, what I think would be good is all the story that's not told in Acts 15 is told in Galatians. And so we are going to jump out of Acts for the next several weeks and we're going to jump into Galatians. Because we need to... We need to settle this, and we're not going to settle it, you guys. I'm just going to tell you right now. (laughs) But in Romans 15, it says you have to settle it for yourself. You have to settle it in your own heart. So it says that in Romans 15. So we're going to go to Galatians, and we're going to... Because remember, Paul probably wrote the letter of Galatians right now in this part of Acts Galatians either happened in Acts 11, right after he went through Pisidian Antioch and preached all those things and across Cyprus. Or he wrote Galatians 2, specifically, right when he got back to Antioch from this trip. And so while all of this action is on our mind, we're going to kind of footnote it over to Galatians for the next several weeks. And we'll start in Galatians 1. We'll work our way all the way through because that's how the letter worked. And then I think that will help us to come back, right back into Acts 15. Because between Acts 35 and Acts 36 is the whole book of Galatians. (laughs) So, So that's where we're going to go. And it will just make the book of Acts that much more of an action movie if we had this little uh, interlude. So with that, let's pray. Lord, you are so awesome. You are so awesome how you love us so much. And you wanted to free us from the judgment of sin. That you wanted to free us from the consequences of sin, which is death. And that you want to bring us into your family and into your life. And I pray, Lord, that that would be just drive home to each one of us, heart and soul. That you would change us from the inside out. That you would show us the righteousness that you've already given us and show us new ways to walk in it and to share it with others. We thank you and we love you and we praise you, Lord. Amen.